0: So a strategy that is going to increase value for the elites, as opposed to democratizing access and making access cheaper and more affordable to everyone, I think is only going to exacerbate inequality, not just in the U.S. and Canada, but everywhere.
1: Welcome to episode 403 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. This is Jess Delfiaco, communications manager. Today, Christopher talks with Steve Song, who is a part-time fellow with Mozilla, On the show today, Steve explains how he became interested in helping people get connected to high-quality Internet access, and he talks about why some of the strategies the United States has adopted are not designed to bring Internet access to the most people possible. Steve tells Christopher about the new ways Spectrum is becoming available for innovative approaches to expanding wireless connectivity, and they discuss the ways in which our current pandemic crisis has influenced how we think about networks and how prepared we are to depend on them. Now here's Christopher talking with Steve Song of Mozilla.
2: Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, working out of my house in St. Paul, which is better than Minneapolis any day anyway. Um, But today I want to talk with Steve Song, who is a person that I think of as being a very interesting thinker on wireless issues and more broadly someone who who thinks outside the box who isn't uh, just uh, um, the kind of person who is feels constrained by what 's been going on um, but anyway he's a part time fellow with mozilla uh, he's also uh, works with the network Startup Resource Center at the University of Oregon and he does some work with the Association of Progressive Communications on something that's uh, near and dear to my heart, uh, supporting community networks around the nation. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thanks very much for having me. Steve, you and I met um, as part of the Mozilla contest in which we were um, judging. Um, we, were, um, we we're deciding who who wins and loses um, for uh, some funds around um, community networking technologies and disaster resiliency last year with the wins contest. That's right, yeah.
0: It was a very interesting competition.
2: Yes, it was. And there was great projects. um, I think many of whom we all loved and had to make hard choices on. But I was very impressed with you throughout in terms of uh, just experiences that you'd had and and judgment that you could share that I I didn't feel like other people had. And I sort of made a note that I wanted to have you on the show. And then recently, we were on a, a, a call together after the the, the the shut-ins began, when people began um, staying home. And you just made a straight comment that I felt like we really should address, which had to do with where we've prioritized uh, wireless technologies going in, in recent years. Um, but let me just start. Let me ask you, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. What's the 90-second version of how you came to be interested in all of this work and, and supporting getting people connected around the world?
0: It goes back a long ways. Um, it actually goes back to the early '90s. I moved to South Africa to get involved in uh, the mass democratic movement there, and uh, got involved in setting up one of the first uh, internet servers for nonprofits there, and in uh, running a nonprofit internet service provider. And was just amazed how, you know, while the postal service was completely subverted by the apartheid uh, government email and internet actually provided this outlet for uh, uh for nonprofit organizations to reach the outside world and to self-organize and it just seemed to me that this was something of unlimited potential uh in terms of uh benefits to civil society and um, of course the reality has proven that it's um you know a sword that cuts both ways in terms <laughs> of that. but uh we still agree that the benefits outweigh the, uh, the the downsides. Otherwise, you know, we probably wouldn't be talking today,
2: right? I mean, it, it's easy to see that. Um, uh, let's just say that um, a loved one is suddenly indulges in conspiracy theories that they hadn't before, um, or or you know, people who um, are in some ways uh, maybe um, harmed by a hoax or phishing attacks on email or something like that. But we we tend not to notice that every research, you know, biology center in the entire world is working together right now on a cure or a vaccine or mitigation or other things, sharing information in ways that just are unfathomable 50 years ago.
0: Not to mention literally millions of students who are, uh, you know, carrying on their education or trying to carry on their education uh, thanks to being able to connect to the Internet. Although, you know, part of what I hope we'll talk to talk about today is all those students who can't do that.
2: Yes. Yeah. I think, you know, um, 10 years ago, uh, I think that a lot of our cable networks would have fallen under the onslaught. We had many fewer people connected. And let's hope that if this happens again in 10 years, that everyone will have a high quality home connection and we'll be able to to deal with that misfortunate situation um, even better. But let me ask you about something, which is, as we think about, whether we have prepared technologically well for this or not. Um, tell me a little bit about, you know, when we were, we were talking before, you mentioned um, that, that the hero of connectivity has been mobile technologies. And I'm just curious if you can tell us um, what that means. Well, I think
0: um, uh, certainly in, uh, in emerging markets, in, if you go back to the, um, the early 90s, telecommunication infrastructure was terrible i mean it was mostly copper based and poorly maintained and not a lot of investment going into it and with the arrival of gsm technologies and also other innovations like uh, pay as you go uh, services it allowed people to to gain access to to voice and and uh, messaging communication places we would never have dreamed that it was economically possible so a whole revolution of connecting uh, where people to critical life-saving technology happened over the course of, say, you know, 1994 to, you know, into, into the sort of 2000s, and uh, and that transformed with the arrival of smartphones into the delivery of internet um, uh, via smartphone and tablet technologies into places that nobody would have believed possible as well. So it is a remarkable story, and um, uh, one that one would hope would would continue to to deliver access, but I think what we're seeing now is is just the limitations of that model. That uh, that mobile networks go so far into uh, into areas, but but you know where in rural areas where there are sparser populations, where income levels are lower, there's just not the economic incentive for operators to deliver services.
2: One of the things that we've seen in the United States, and I'm I'm presuming it's true. If you have uh, any low-income households in Canada, I'm I'm not entirely sure you have any because it's such a we we idealize it as such a wonderful place where everyone's polite and and um you know I guess um, in some ways above average, which is not Minnesota anymore, unfortunately, with the end of the that of Garrison Keillor's reign. Um, but the point I was getting at is that um, we have a lot of people who depend on mobile technologies here as well for uh, the Internet access because they cannot afford a, a fixed connection in their home. Uh, and if they have to choose between a mobile connection and a fixed, many have chosen a mobile connection. And so, you know, you described um, how the world's been connected. But in many ways, um, our, uh, you know, working class um, people who are on the edge um, have, have also had to rely on mobile networks uh, because we haven't made it a priority to make sure everyone can afford a high quality fixed connection, even though they're mostly available um, in the United States.
0: Yeah, I think that um, if we are going to connect everyone affordably to the internet and all the rest of it, um, yeah, we, we need actually a mix of models. And uh, large operators have have delivered tremendous value in terms of the spread of network infrastructure. But you know, just as with any business, um, yeah or any sector you know small businesses are just as important as uh, as big businesses, and historically that 's been impossible uh, to do in the telecommunications sector because you had to you had to invest in the entire supply chain of communication but now, thanks to the spread of fiber optic networks there 's a certain disaggregation that goes on and if you can connect to a fiber optic network, then you can uh, arguably deliver competitive services. Uh, anywhere, and that's what we see with a lot of wireless ISPs, um, particularly in the US, but everywhere else in the world as well, is that uh, is that they can generate businesses and and deliver services. And indeed, community networks can as well, in terms of you know uh, operating different sustainability models of cooperatives and community-owned network infrastructure. Uh, to date, they've largely been limited to you know, what we know as license-exempt spectrum or Wi-Fi in the 5 gigahertz and 2.4 uh, gigahertz bands, which is great, but is, is, is somewhat limited in the ability to deliver services for for two reasons. One, because it's, it's a limited amount of spectrum, but also because license-exempt works because the power limits uh, are, are constrained on it, which means you can operate only fairly small Uh, networks with that, as opposed to the mobile network operators, which operate transmitters that are broadcasting much more loudly and can cover a bigger area.
2: One of the things you said when uh, we got the idea for the show uh, was that uh, we have not prioritized uh, 5G as providing any of the functionality that we really need right now, as we um, live in our homes and poke our heads out on occasion to uh, make sure no one's around before we run to the grocery store or take a jog um, and so I'm I'm curious what what you meant by that. Um, have we like, what else could we have done? Uh, in, if Steve Song was the wizard who set the five G specs, and um, you know, what what should have been done in terms of how we evolved to the next generation of wireless technologies here?
0: Five G does represent you know tremendous technological advances in many respects. But, you know, if we were to wind the clock back uh, to, you know, the and think of the the telecommunication industry a bit like the the motor car industry, it's, uh, you know, we're at that moment where, you know, you could have Henry Ford, you know, deciding to build the cheapest, most practical car for as many people as possible. Um, Or you could have Mercedes-Benz, you know, deciding to build an elite uh, automobile for the uh you know uh, for the discerning customer who can afford it and uh, requires you know very very high performance uh, 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 vehicles and uh you know 5 g is more of a mercedes benz than a than a model t ford right it's uh it's focused on very very low latency connections which you know may serve the the interests of uh, high frequency traders um, you know, or uh, focused on, you know, like massive amounts of bandwidth to serve virtual reality applications. But it's not focused on driving down the cost of access and it's not focused on rural connectivity. And I think if we've learned anything from the pandemic, it's that we need to make sure everybody's connected. Because right now, in order for this strategy of everyone, you know, staying home, they need connections to the internet. They need their kids to be able to gain access to information. They need to be able to operate, you know, uh, remotely. Of course, it's not practical for everyone, but there are a lot of people who can still carry on their jobs if they have uh, you know, access to to connectivity. So, a strategy that is going to increase value for the elites, which is, you know, a focus on urban architecture and uh, and higher, faster bandwidth, as opposed to you know, democratizing access. And uh, and making access, you know, much, you know, cheaper and more affordable to everyone, I think, is only going to exacerbate inequality in um, not just in the U.S. and Canada, but everywhere. A strategy to do that would be to focus on driving down the cost of 4G infrastructure and making it pervasive. You know, at the same time as you're developing. 5G infrastructure, and there's lots of interesting things going on in that domain. So there's an initiative as part of the telecom infra project called OpenRAN, which is opening standards for radio infrastructure. There's lots of low-cost or manufacturers there who are producing 4G technology at the same kind of prices as we, you know, as we think of as Wi-Fi infrastructure. But now the challenge is, how do we open up that ecosystem? give access to spectrum uh, so that, you know, the, those technologies and those more kind of federated open standards based approaches can thrive. And, and the U S is really, I mean, uh, full credit on the forefront of that happening. So there, um, the FCC is doing that with the 3.5 gigahertz band um, with something called citizens broadband or CBRS, which is fantastic, very much at odds with the rest of the world that has, rather decided to, to auction that spectrum in a, in a much more traditional manner. And recently, the FCC have also announced that uh, the 6 gigahertz band of their intention to, to expand you know, 5 gigahertz Wi-Fi into 6 gigahertz. So in many ways, the, uh, the U.S. regulator is very much someone to look to in terms of ideas for innovation in this space. But at the same time, you you have this discussion, you know, of kind of like, how do we win the 5G race <laughs> in order to achieve economic supremacy? I think economic supremacy comes from everyone having affordable access because the real generators of value are the people, right? Not technologies.
2: I agree. Absolutely. With that. And I, I'm just struck by one of the things that one of the reasons that we fear in some extent um, the rise of, of China is because it has so many people who could be so incredibly productive and and do so much and and um, and same similarly with India is that the the number of people they have that could do interesting things if they were all connected and um, and, and that sort of a thing. It, you know, we don't worry as much about the rise of of um, Luxembourg. <laughs> 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 you know, there's some limits there. Um, fine. No. But, you know, if I if, let me be contrary and say that it seemed to me that that you were saying we missed opportunities but then you listed a lot of things we're doing right in terms of the CBRS, in terms of the um, the six gigahertz for um, for unlicensed Wi-Fi. Um, you know, to some extent, uh, T-Mobile with the way it's deploying uh, its five uh, G uh, in terms of the rural areas uh, will. Many, bring the benefits of 4G to a wider audience because of the spectrum bands that they're using. Um, you know, I'm not exactly sure what I'd change if if I could go back and, and implement your plan. So, what did, what what didn't we do that we should have done more specifically?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think um, my comments are, are are directed more broadly than the, than the US. Um,
2: so, so let's just get this on record then. So we have, um, you know, a person <laughs> who, you know, both of us are very critical of many things that this FCC has done, but it's a reminder that, that they have made some very good decisions um, that will give us long-term benefits, um, despite the fact that we would still disagree with perhaps a majority of the decisions they've made.
0: Yes. What I like about spectrum policy in the U.S. is that there have been very deliberate uh, decisions taken to enable small enterprise to deliver services, and and the U.S. has a thriving wireless ISP industry that um, uh, that is benefiting from those decisions. Um, could they do better? Sure, but I think uh, in those respects, um, the uh, the U.S. is an outlier. If I look at the rest of the world, you know, few countries have taken you know uh, uh, have taken the steps to enable access, for instance, TV white space spectrum, which the US was a pioneer of. You get a few countries following following suit, but it has you know ultimately been slow to take off elsewhere.
2: I'm just fascinated by that. Is that because of incumbents generally? Are they just more powerful elsewhere? Um, You know, is it is it is it actually corruption? Um, You know, is it what I'm there's a tendency in North America, in particular, in the United States, I think, to assume one reason that that doesn't happen is people aren't as intelligent elsewhere. And that's not my my experience. (laughs) My experience is people elsewhere are quite intelligent. And so I'm curious why they're making decisions that we would think of as being pretty easy to classify as wrong.
0: There are a few reasons. Uh, One, it didn't transpire as successfully as one might have hoped in the U.S. So there was a lot of pushback from the broadcast industry, from the wireless mic industry, which resulted in the regulations being a kind of, you know, a a, a much more watered down set of regulations than one might have hoped and and somewhat bureaucratic in, in, in how it's applied, which has you know slow down i think its adoption in for certainly in emerging markets because it 's now quite a complex thing to to adopt with you know geolocation database authentication and so on. I think it has also suffered from you know a lot of lobbying from uh, the mobile operators who see it as a potential threat to to their business model which uh, re- uh, you know relies on exclusive access to spectrum um Which they pay for, uh, you know, typically at auction or or, um, you know through uh, through other mechanisms, millions of dollars for that exclusivity, which then acts as a kind of firewall to participation from uh, from other operators. And they see you know things like dynamic spectrum as Wi-Fi as ultimately sort of threatening threatening that model. And you know, fair enough, it should it should threaten that model. That's the
1: goal.
0: (laughs) You know the. uh, any healthy ecosystem. You know, if you think of a forest, you know, you want you know young growth that will ultimately grow up into to be big trees. And um, the the idea of sort of killing off or or stopping that growth is is not is not you know a great stimulus to competition.
2: Absolutely, I think one of the things that um, that I recall us discussing is is communications in times of disasters. And and I'm curious about that as well. I mean, in, in terms of your, you know, the points that you make I think are very well taken in that we haven't chosen to maximize the democratic potential of these technologies by driving down the cost and, and making sure they're widely available. Uh, one of the areas in which I suspect we'll, we'll pay for that is in the res- response to disasters, uh, of which I think you could certainly classify what we're in right now, where the systems are um, actually working better than they may in other disasters. But nonetheless, still, we see lots of problems, and, and most especially because of how many people are not connected to high-quality networks right now so are we are we do we build a more brittle system than we had to?
0: this disaster is unique um, in that it's not uh, it's not something that uh, that we can recover from uh, quickly and it's not and it's something that actually requires us to stay in place and we you know we've never experienced that before, and uh you know there's no quick answer i mean you know I think there are some. Modestly rapid responses in, uh, you know, Google Loon are going to deploy over over Kenya to increase access there. But you know, it's not like we can suddenly roll out a hundred new base stations somewhere to, you know, to fix the problem of affordable access for all. I've seen a lot of articles in the press, you know, saying, well, actually, broadband is something that's as so important to us. You know, it needs to be a utility, and we need to go back to thinking of it like a utility. I largely agree with that perspective, although, you know, I don't think anybody wants to go back to the days of kind of, you know, a single monolithic, uh, you know, national bureaucratic utility. I think there's an opportunity now to revisit the ideas of utilities in the same way that, um, you know, that uh, electric uh, cooperatives have done so amazingly in, in the U.S. and are now uh, evolving into fiber optic utilities that local ownership of infrastructure, especially in rural areas, just seems like a very natural response to the problem, because it's you know I live in in rural Nova Scotia in Canada and you know we care about our our little economy here mm-hmm. and are prepared to invest in it, but the mechanisms uh, are simply not designed to 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 enable that or support that you know the all of the kind of universal service schemes are aimed at big operators and trying to, you know, somehow create uh, an attractive enough scenario for big operators to arrive here. And even when they do, you know, you may only get one operator that, that actually ultimately ends up serving a, a region through a universal service uh, program that provides you with access, but it doesn't necessarily provide you with affordability because there's no, there's no competitive pressure on the prices.
2: You you allow me to make a, a wonderful point that I've been kicking around lately, which is um in the United States the Connect America Fund um you know has certain requirements in terms of a history of operations, a letter of credit and this and that. You gotta jump through these hoops that really discourages local solutions from getting the money. You know, they prefer to lend to big stable organizations like Frontier and Windstream, companies that are going through bankruptcy right now. <laughs> You know, and it really it makes you think, you know, I mean, like we know that AT&T does not care about rural America. We know that CenturyLink has been very clear for years that they will only invest in rural America where where they get most of the money from someone else. And and for some reason, that seems to still be the way the federal government thinks it should be distributing money. And it should have figured out a long time ago. That's not the best model. But it's. um. You know, it just seems like it's set by who has the powerful lobby rather than uh, what's best for a community like you. I mean, you, like most communities, don't get a say in how the money is spent on your be- your benefit. And I, it's just wrong.
0: Well, and, and indeed, um, we have formed and registered a cooperative here uh, with the intent of raising money to build a rural fiber broadband network but unfortunately haven't been able to participate in any of the universal service schemes because of that requirement of being a, uh, a commercial operator. You know, I, I understand this is government money and one wants to make sure that, uh, that it is spent in a, in a responsible way. At the same time, you know, cooperatives have you know, demonstrated themselves uh, you know, throughout the U.S., in uh, you know, northern England, in Spain, as being very very credible alternatives and creating mechanisms to allow them to thrive, I think you know it's just a missed missed opportunity. The irony is that you know uh, cooperatives have, have such a, a pedigree. Where where I live in Nova Scotia, you know, you know, they've been around for 150 years, and in the agricultural sector, in the finance sector, have proven to be like the optimum mechanism in many ways for stimulating um, you know rural economies.
2: Yes, uh, you know, <laughs> it's, it is frankly depressing how few lessons were taken correctly uh, from the enormous success of the Rural Electrification Administration. Um, you know, to some extent, I'm glad people do still recollect that it happened, and that's how we connected um, rural America, but people really haven't yet understood that the magic was the local ownership of the cooperatives rather than a whole lot of federal money. <laughs> Well,
0: and indeed, I mean, that lesson is being taken on in, you know, not just in the uh, in the global north, but in the global south, in South Africa, in the Eastern Cape. There's a a cooperative that was formed just a few years ago called Zenzeleni, and they are delivering uh, Internet services in a rural area at uh, at a fraction of the cost of the incumbents. And they could be doing so much better. Uh, not to circle the conversation around, but uh, if they had access to spectrum, because they have uh, Wi-Fi technologies, which are great, but not great for rural areas that, where you're trying to cover uh, a large, sparsely populated region. So uh, that's certainly part of my work now, is working to um, to encourage regulators to release that spectrum in rural areas. One of the things we know is that spectrum in rural areas in any country you pick in the world is mostly unoccupied. Um, you know, if you take something like 2.6 gigahertz, which is a popular LTE band in the UK, into rural areas, you know, it's maybe five percent occupation of that spectrum. So, what is needed, I think, are you know specific rules around rural access to spectrum. We can't treat it the same as in as in urban areas. And that's where one uh, one place where where the UK is actually pioneering uh, very interesting and new models for for access uh, access to LTE spectrum specifically designed for for rural areas. So that I mean, and it's interesting. It's um, you know, it's a bit like CBRS, um, but it's more targeted to areas where where there is no use of spectrum in, in rural areas, whereas CBR, CBRS is more generic in that respect.
2: Well, that's excellent. It's a good note of hope to end on. And um, I appreciate you taking the time to, to come on the show, Steve, and um, share this uh, the work you've done around the world, but also helping us to remind ourselves that just because we did things one way in the past uh, doesn't mean we have to keep doing them the wrong way.
0: Well, I'm flattered to be asked. I'm a big fan of uh, your work.
1: That was Christopher talking with Steve Song of Mozilla. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at mininetworksorg broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at community nets. Follow Networks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at Networks. Subscribe to this and the other podcasts from ILSR, Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arna Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was episode 403 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening.